This is the Cop Think Podcast, where we answer the question, why do the police do what they do? I'm the host, Brian Casey, and my guest is Ed Dion. Welcome, Ed. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Did you uh, work yesterday? I did work yesterday. Anything interesting? Uh, yeah, something I'd never seen before. So, Ooh, all yeah, right. That was odd. How, now, before you tell us what that is, <laughs> how long have you been a cop? Uh, 25 years, 22 with St. Paul and three in Austin, Texas. Oh, okay. So Austin, Texas, you were a brand new cop yeah. in a big city though. Uh, yeah, it's bigger than St. Paul. Yeah. I, I went there after I got out of the <clears throat> Navy. Okay. And then, um, what did you, what happened? What did you see yesterday? Can you tell us? Yeah, it was, uh, a uh, girl 24 guy 26 27 and they were fighting over the child because neither one wanted to take the child home and i i turned to the cop that was with me and i thought and i said to him i've never seen this in all of these years i have never seen two parents refuse to take a baby and they thought maybe going into taking the child into protective services was was the best option and it just kind of blew me away a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So to blow a cop away a little bit uh, after 25 years of doing the job, an urban cop, so you've mm. taken a lot of calls. Yeah. That's kind of impressive. Well, it's just something I had never seen. And, uh, you know, I, my children mean so much to me. And, and to watch this, it's a nine-month-old baby. And I thought, oh. What chance does that kid have? It just, you know, it breaks your heart, truly. So I think, you know, um, when you, when people, when you think of police work and the pain and suffering of that, I don't know if cops even talk about what you just talked about, but that's the thing that is probably most demoralizing or painful. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I, I may be a different kind of cop, but I, I do talk about it. I mean, I do bring it up in roll calls. You know, I, I, uh, I don't know if I want to facilitate a good word, maybe instigate some of these conversations. Uh, so we do talk about it. So know. what would that be like? So you'd be in roll call and what would happen? Holy man, you should have seen what happened last night kind of deal. Well, what, what? And we talk, we debrief, we talk, and it's a way for, you know, us to process our, our days. It might not happen at showdown, you know, at the end of the night, but it, you know, it'll happen the next day in roll call. So, or when we go to church after work. Mm-hmm. And his church, uh, church might be used a couple to be like going to choir practice, right? A couple of cocktails after work. All right. So that's um, that's a ritual. That's something important to you. Why mm-hmm. is that? Not though, not it, only the church, but what, what about the church is most important? It's uh, it's just that bonding time. I mean, you, you're out of your uniform. So you're more comfortable, uh, and you're you're bringing up uh, you know family. You're all over the map when it comes to a conversation at church. Uh, you're talking about cars. You're talking about wives and kids, and then you're talking about calls, and it all kind of gets mixed in there, and it and it uh, builds that esprit de corps and that camaraderie that small units need to function at a at a higher level. Um, you know, and if you work with a group for several years, uh, it, there's real benefits to it. You know, trust is built. 
those types of things. So you know, um, so in law enforcement, especially maybe in larger agencies where we have larger groups of cops starting at the same time, we have the roll call, which is a really important ritual. It's um, something that I personally enjoyed. I like being in roll call. I like being a supervisor and leading a roll call. It was the best part of my day, actually. Mm -hmm. And I've often thought about, so you, you roll call, you kind of prepare their minds for going out. There's this huge benefit to seeing each other and kind of getting in that ritual. Um, they're often hilarious, irreverent, um, <laughs> yeah. loud, uh, and then and sometimes informative. And then I always thought after when you end, and a lot of guys do, you're already saying that you guys do in your unit or where you work at, and I'll let you explain that in a minute, but also just the kind of um, locker room banter before people go home is really important too. And I always thought it's kind of like role recall, you know, uh, oh, yeah, someone told funny. me a sergeant used to say, you know, well, boys, we tried. We'll see you tomorrow. We'll try again, <laughs> you know, just to kind of frame it up a little yeah. bit. So yeah. um, I think that the the roll call, I think probably what you were sensing is the energy uh, that's in the room. So you have that collective energy and you're picking it up. I mean, we're animals, right? And we pick up on energy. We pick up on energy when we're on the street, when we're dealing with someone. And so I think that in roll calls, we're picking up on the energy of the, the men and women that are around us. So uh, I, I would I would guess that that's what you're picking up on. That's why it was such a important part of your day uh, is that collective energy of the group. You know. Well, and I think um, I was just I just was doing some work yesterday on resiliency and a big popular topic. And mm -hmm. I think often we think of resiliency as an individual thing, right? Um, uh, you know, are you well rested? Do you have uh, do you have an internal locus of control? Do you how do you view your power and might, uh, your ability to influence your life, those type of things? And there's a lot of other factors in resiliency. I think a huge resiliency factor is um, the resiliency that is not individual but group, and even it's a protective factor. I mean, do you remember during the the riots how much I think our agency really de benefited from we all deployed from the same location, uh, had sometimes massive roll calls, food and snacks and ability to make sure your equipment was squared away, and then a lot of laughing and joking, and then we all, we, we all went back to that same location before we ended our tour. Yep. I, I just like that whole collective healing, the protective factor of being around other people co-workers i actually feel really sorry for cops that work in isolation too much yeah i've always uh for me personally um group work uh being part of a group uh um i guess i, I picked up on it in the military that that this is this is what i like i think that's why you know uh when i left the military i became a cop because i like that um when you go through something like the, the riots, we call it a crucible. If you look at any boot camps within the military, they all have, or any special operations group or something like that, um, they have some type of crucible that they, they go through. And that's that melds that group together. And I think the riots did that. Uh, and that's what you were kind of, I think, what you were probably picking up on was that, um, you know, we're going through this together. And I got you on my right and you on my left, and uh, I can count on you and you can count on me. And it's, uh, that's powerful. I, uh, for, for me, personally, it's powerful. But, but I, I saw that. I saw how guys were 
uh, kind of working together. And, you know, you could just feel that that energy was out there. There was that, uh, that focus. Yeah, I think uh, there was a common purpose that really helped. Oh, yeah. Maybe yeah. a common yep. adversary and even a common pain, you know. I mean, yep. I, I remember being with cops during uh, what they described as uh, really a, a nice way of saying civil unrest, which ranged from, I suppose, peaceful protesting to looting, mm-hmm. burning th- things down, throwing mm-hmm. rocks and bottles at the cops and worse. And uh, to see that destruction, I heard a cop say, you know, it was heartbreaking to see the town that we work in, patrol in, some cops live here, and to see it being just so much destruction. Yeah. Um, there's a huge benefit, at least psychologically, to be with coworkers and, yep. sh- and, and sharing that and, and feeling and believing that we are on the right side of this stuff. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, that's so. Um, so you got right into it. I was going to tell you a quick story, and it would lead into your. Uh, oh, you're thinking I'm going to tell got, a story. You about got you. right right into it. He says. <laughs> well, you started with that sad yeah. story, uh, which I actually I'm, I lean towards sad stories myself. Um, mm. When I start telling stories at home and with the game, <laughs> I, yeah. I kind of go into that too much sometimes. But I really, I think you made the point that you bring that up. You kind of get that out in the open. I think that's a really interesting thing that you do that with your coworkers. You're kind of like, this was, I remember even uh, um, other cops and paramedics doing that. And it was kind of impressive, you know, because they're like, that was, let's take, let's notice what we noticed here, right. you know. All right. Uh, you know, I mean, that, I think that comes a lot from uh, my military training. I, I think some of it comes from my upbringing. There were always stories come from an Irish family and so they're always sitting around the table with the six kids and stories from my dad and stories from my mom um, processing their days and so I probably picked up on on, on that um, and I just think as a maybe it's my Irish heritage I don't know a storyteller type of thing maybe there's something in my DNA that that likes uh, doing the storytelling I'm I'm not sure but uh, I think it's vitally important that we share that type of stuff and and um, you know, that's why I wanted to be a peer support member. Uh, that was important to me. Um, Let me, here's here's what I was going to pull you into. Okay. All right. Um, so when I was, my kids were in scouts, uh, there was another dad uh, uh, in uh, in scouts, and he told me a funny story once. Now, this is a big, um, he was a big uh, Minnesota farm boy, mm-hmm. and he joined the Navy, mm-hmm. but he didn't know how to swim. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how many guys join the Navy and don't have a clue how to swim. That's remarkable. Yeah. Um, and um, and he said the way he learned to swim is they threw him in the water. Yep. And I remember him telling the story. He's a big man, big, strong hands. Um, and he laughed about it. But can you imagine, you know, big, strong farm boy from Minnesota and yeah. how scared he was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Terrified, probably. Yeah, there's. You'd be surprised how many. I mean, I remember boot camp guys. Just they have to go to remedial swim for two weeks <laughs> during boot camp. And I was a, a a strong swimmer. That's why I became a rescue swimmer um, because I could swim. I want to talk about that. So let me ask you. Uh, you grew up in a big Irish family, six kids. I had six kids. Yep. Say, I had six kids in my family. Um, where did you guys grow up? So I was born in New York City. 
Um, my parents were from from New York. My dad, uh, the Bronx, the Irish enclave of the Bronx. So my mother from uh, Manhattan, kind of midtown, and the tenement the, the tenement houses off of sixty uh, six and eighth, uh, which is now Fordham University, uh, and that's that's where I grew up going to St. Kevin's and. So what did your dad do for work? My dad was in the ele- elevator trade. He joined the trade when he was 16 and uh, worked in the trade for, I want to say, close to 60 years, 58 years he was in the elevator trade. So he started off in construction. And then there's you become an adjuster, which is a mechanic troubleshooting, and then you become a supervisor of construction, and then you become a... Uh, district manager and then a regional manager. So he moved up. He was a, there's nothing that Ed Dion didn't know about elevators. I can tell you that. Are you the oldest? No, I have uh, two older sisters and uh, a younger brother and two younger sisters. But you're the first Ed after Dad. Right. So the the guy who came over from Ireland was named Edward Gallagher or Gallagher, they say over there. And uh, my dad was named for him. And then I was named for him. And then my son was named Edward for my dad, so passing that down. And how old? Uh, so you grew up in New York in, I forgot what you said, what borough? I was in Queens. I was born in Forest Hills, where Donald Trump is from. Okay. And uh, uh, I was born at Forest Hills, St. Joseph's in Forest Hills. And uh, uh, we lived in uh, Flushing, uh, on the border of Flushing and Bayside, Queens. How old were you when you left New York. I think I was like 13, about 13. Really? I think we went down to Atlanta. So my dad was following the trade, like most construction guys do. Left New York and uh, went to Atlanta. Went to high school in Atlanta. And then uh, when I was a senior in high school, we moved to Houston, which wasn't a whole lot of fun uh, for me. Oh, um, yeah, because you're a senior. And you're... I was a senior. And I had, been, I had started working in the elevator trade at 16. And so that's where I made my money over Christmas and summer working in the elevator trade, uh, which was really good money back in 1978. Yeah, 1978 I started, $5 an hour, which was pretty good money. And then uh, from from there I graduated high school and went to college in Texas. And then after college I joined the Navy and became a rescue swimmer. So did you go how many years of college? Four, I have a, I have a bachelor's degree. In what? Geography. Okay. You didn't get it in the elevator business. You, got it in you know, I it was one of those deals where the elevator trade would have been a good trade for me, and I was okay with it, but I didn't want to always be Ed Dion's kid in the trade. So I was looking to do that breakout thing, So, which is often typical, you know, of sons following their, their fathers. Sure, and then when did the Navy come in? So I graduated college, and... Uh, I had I had wanted to always be a policeman or or uh, in the Navy. That that was always my goal. I was going to be in the Navy or I was going to be a policeman. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And while I was in college, it was like my last semester in college. I, I used to do volunteer at the Catholic chapel, um, like doing all the heavy lifting. There were some walls, you know, construction kind of stuff. And I was talking to Father Bill, was a priest, and uh, he says. Uh, so I said, Bill, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I want to be a policeman, but I want to go in the Navy. I want to be a policeman. I be in there. And he goes, well, why don't you do both? I mean, the answer was so simple. And I thought, he's right. I can do both. So uh, 
I went to the officer recruiter and in the Navy, the officers, there's maybe six or eight jobs. You know, you could drive a boat or fly a plane, do submarine supply, medical chaplain. There, it's kind of limited what you can do as an officer in the military. So then I went to the enlisted recruiter who was, you know, a couple of doors down. I said, how many jobs do you have? And he goes, oh, we got like 87 jobs. And uh, so I go, well, let me see a book. And so I'm looking through a book. And he says, uh, do you know how to swim? And I go, yeah. He says, are you afraid of heights? No. I was in the elevator trade. Uh, have you ever been a lifeguard? I said, I've done a little bit of that. Um, he says, are you afraid to fly? Well, no, I'm not afraid to fly. He says, how would you like to be a lifeguard of all of the oceans? Mm. And I thought, that sounds like a really cool job for me. Yep, sign me up. And that's what I did. So... People thought I was nuts for not going in as an officer, but it was probably the best thing that could happen to me. So what did he mean? He means if you're a, a, a Navy rescue swimmer, you're a lifeguard of the oceans, meaning that's, so I, that's, that's, I, is that what am I understanding that? Right. So I, I flew in um, helicopters, the H-3 Sikorsky seeking uh, at the time. Now, that, that's been put to pasture. There are no, no more. Um, so every time an aircraft carrier goes out, it has six or eight helicopters on board. And uh, any time the planes were launching or landing, the helicopter was up because the most dangerous time for the pilots, if there's going to be a failure, is going to be uh, uh, recovering or launching aircraft. So we would just fly in starboard delta off the back end of the boat, and in case a plane crashed, we were immediately on top of the survivor to pick up a survivor. Well, the... The boats operate all over the world, and it, that's what he meant by that, was that you could be a lifeguard anywhere in the world, in whatever ocean. So, Well, okay, so you were in, yeah. that was, um, <clears throat> pardon me, mostly during peacetime for you? Uh, that was 85, yeah, I went in in 85. But interesting, during peacetime, there's still a lot of aircraft carriers and a lot of takeoffs and landings. Yes, yeah, power projection. Um, you know, we... we uh, fly to flag all over the all over the world, uh, and it's uh, it's what navies do, and it was all about power projection, and so we'd hit all kinds of ports and you know go all over the world to say don't mess with us kind of thing. So navy swimmers, um, tell us a little bit about what it takes to do that because you're swimming in the ocean. You're you're it's not pleasure swimming. I mean, it must be intense training. The the training was was probably the hardest thing. <clears throat> Um, the training part, just the initial training, uh, you know, if, uh, and this, these, they're not Navy SEALs. A lot of people think, oh, you're a rescue swimmer, you're a Navy. No, I was not a Navy SEAL. You rescue even, Navy SEALs. No, 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 no. no I'm going to get beat up <laughs> if you say that. That was reckless of me. <laughs> it was very reckless. And my name is not a Dion. Um, so the, the, the training was intense. So you go to boot camp, and then from boot camp you would go to air crew school, which was I think five or six weeks, um, and that's their kind of their testing to see if you can, if you're going to be able to keep up physically fit, if you had the good eyes, if you had the good hearing, all of that stuff, uh, and then you start a five five week course at rescue swimmer school, with the first week being PT in, so it's really kind of a six week deal. Um, and I, well, our class started with 22, and we graduated, I believe, eight. Mm -hmm. So it had a pretty high attrition rate. 
Um, and it's, it's just, it's a lot of physical stuff, you know, and they're putting a lot of stress. It's, it's all mind games that they're, they're playing. And they're, they're, they're trying to, they're putting you in there so much stress. They're, they're weakening your body to kind of weaken your resolve to see if you can stand up and, and, and you're not going to quit. And that's what they're looking for is, is this, this guy going to quit? You might not be able to do a push up, but as long as you're putting some effort into it, they're going to get off your back. <laughs> as far as mind games, they, um, uh, Petios or Letowski, AW1 Letowski, I'll never forget the name, big Polish guy. I'm walking out, and, and the last thing that you do, there's a final test. It's called a final multi. And what they do is they, um, they put three scenarios in the water all at the same time. You're supposed to jump off the platform, figure out who to go for first, and pick, you know, and then rescue those people. And then once you get done with that, you go do triage on somebody because we were kind of like EMTs in a helicopter. So Letowski, as I'm walking out the day before, says to me, uh, just so you know, you're going to have to repeat the school. I'm like, what? And he says, uh, yeah, you're going to have to repeat the school because everybody that you've tried to save over the last five weeks has died. So just be prepared because you're not going to pass tomorrow. Okay. Copy that. <laughs> and I walk back to my barracks and I'm sitting there, uh, watching. And I, I must say we, we knocked off at 1600 for four o'clock. And, uh, I'm sitting there, um, and I, I must've called my mom I said, mom, I, I think I'm going to be here another five weeks. He told me I'm the worst rescue swimmer they've ever seen, <laughs> you know, and I'm a young guy. So I'm not, and never been in the military. I hadn't been anywhere other than boot camp into here into Pensacola. I, I, I had no idea what they were doing to me. And she, oh, you're, be, you know, my mother from, from, and oh, you'd be fine. Edward. Don't, don't worry about it. You'd be okay. Okay, Ma, thanks. And so I'm sitting there. I remember that night. It was about 6 o'clock, and I'm watching Dan Rather on TV, on the news, in the common room, in the barracks. And uh, somebody's behind me, and he goes, Hey, how you doing? And I turn around with my dad. Yeah, in Pensacola. He's on base. Now, this is before, you know, you could just get a visitor pass and go on base. And I said, Pop, what are you doing here? And he goes, I'm, I'm on my way. Now, they were living in Houston, and he was going to Orlando for some kind of meeting or something like that, and he was driving. He must have called my mom at some point, and this is pre-cell phone, so I don't know how they got in touch with each other. And uh, he says, your mom told me, you know, you had a tough day. And I go, yeah, I don't know, Pop. He goes, come on, let's go get something to eat. So we went to get something to eat. And uh, during the course of the conversation, he goes, are you okay? Because I'm not eating. You know, I'm just kind of staring off into space, being a space cadet. And he says, uh, hey, listen, he goes, anything you've ever tried, you've been able to accomplish. So just go out there and do the best you can. Okay, Bob. And that taught me a great deal about resiliency, right? I mean, it gave me that confidence that I needed to be successful. Uh, a huge lesson, a huge life lesson, right, that uh, as a parent, as a police officer, as a coworker, I try to, you know, I, I remember that. I mean, that's such a vivid story. I can see him. I, he was wearing a white shirt and a brown tie. I remember exactly what he was wearing that day. So, that, so that's a rescue swimmer story. That's a good story. Um, in fact, 
Were you describing a scene from a movie that we saw or something that sounded like? No. <laughs> you know, I think what I also like about that story is when you tell it now, you're a confident man who has raised a family, had a couple careers, you know, but you weren't that. You weren't a confident man back, you know, you were a young guy. I was just, yeah, I was a boy. I mean, yeah. I think back, what, what, what do you know at 22? I look at my kids who are 22 and 20 now and go, Oh, yeah, so much to learn. It's, it's coming. Wow, and even the whole concept that they just want to see if you quit. You, If you would have had that in your head like you and I have now, yeah, that would have, but you don't have that in your head back then, you know? And you're and a, yeah. a grown man tells you the way things are going to go, and you're like, oh, boy, okay. Yeah, I'm fixing to get hammered. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Um, really, that's a good, that's a really nice story. I'm glad mm -hmm. you got to tell that. Yeah. Um, your kids have heard that story. Yeah, once or twice. Yeah, probably. they will now anyway. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> so the rescue swimmer swimming in the ocean. I just finished reading um, a book about the sinking of the Essex, which was oh yeah, that's a great book. Yeah, in the early eighteen hundreds, yep. yep. the boat that inspired um, Moby Dick. Moby Dick, yep. the boat that was sunk by uh, a whale. Yep. And just you know whatever, almost three months on the open ocean. You know, what is it like to swim in the ocean? And it's not like you're on the beach. Uh, you try not to think about what's around you and you what's underneath you or what's underneath you. Right. You just, you're just swimming. We had uh one mile ocean swims that we used to do every week, you know, for training purposes. And I had a friend of mine, I love him to death, Bob Hack, and we're still in touch even 30 years later. Bob was afraid of heights and he was afraid of sharks and he's a rescue swimmer. Mm-hmm. And we would drive over the, the Bay Bridge in Coronado. It's a very high bridge on several hundred feet high. And uh, Bob would make me drive on, in, in the inside lane so he wouldn't have to look over the edge of the... This is a rescue swim. <laughs> and uh, we would go do our ocean swims, and he'd be in my hip pocket. And I go, Bob, I can't swim. You're, you're like, crowding me. He goes, I'm, I'm sorry, but... It, so uh, it, could be, it could be scary, but, I mean, Bob, Bob had rescues on the boat, and, and he jumped in the water when he needed to jump in the water. He just overcame his fears, you know, and... And I love that guy for it. Well, yeah. not only resiliency, sometimes we think of it by the definition of bouncing back from trouble, right? Right. But it's also um, going into trouble, and it's also enduring trouble and difficulties, too, yeah. you know? Yeah. What did, so you guys must have done swim. You must have been in the ocean at night. Was there a drill for that? Too? Yep. We, did, we trained at night. You know, they put a little glow stick on your mask, and uh, <clears throat> they would drop you off in the water, and... Uh, were you ever by yourself in the water in the ocean at night? Yeah, so so uh, we used to have to qual every three months or six months. I don't remember the qual cycle, but you would have to jump at night. Well, you didn't jump at night. They would lower you down in the water, and you would unhook, and then they would drop another guy, you know, a hundred yards away from you, and then you would swim towards each other, and one guy would rescue the other guy, and that would qualify as your as your. And we had those little glow sticks, so you could kind of see them. And they had an Aldis lamp or spot lamp, uh, spotlight on that helo, yeah. and they would shine it down so you weren't completely in the dark. They're not kind of just leave you out there like that. So, um, um, yeah. So we did we did night work and we did day work and we jumped and and usually there would be six guys in the helo with one guy working the work working the wire that the lowering the hook down, bringing the hook up, and that type of thing. And when you would do your jumps. Um, you would have, you know, one guy would go. So the, so the plan was, um, 
you could jump at 15 feet static, helicopter not moving, or 10 feet and 10 knots. The helicopter's moving at 10 knots and it's supposed to be at 10 feet. Well, if you were the number six guy, the pilots get a little nervous being down at 10 feet because they're pretty close to the deck. Um, and there's a thing called ground effect and it messes them up and everything. So uh, <laughs> if you were number six, you were probably jumping from 30 feet, 35 feet. <laughs> and you're supposed to go in a certain way. And oftentimes the arms are flailing. It's And if you were the first one in the water, all you're doing is laughing, looking at the guy falling out of the helicopter at 30 feet. What did you What did you wear when you're in the ocean? You had a pair of fins. Uh, you don't call them flippers. Flipper was a fish. Yeah, it's um, like calling it a, 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 um, a magazine a clip. I right, right, right. Same concept. Yeah. So you, uh, you had some booties. You had a pair of uh, you know uh, shorts, like a, like a wetsuit pair of shorts, wetsuit top. You'd have a a, a vest, which was your harness. And then you would have a horse collar uh, flotation device that's not inflated, and a mask and, and uh, mask and snorkel. And yeah, so you it. don't have anything inherently inflated because that would in, impede your mobility, yeah, and you've yep. got to be a strong swimmer. But it right. would be there; you could inflate it out. Yeah, the, the the wetsuit kept you up. I mean, it it gave you a little bit more buoyancy. Have you ever had an opportunity um, as a police officer to use your swimming skills, your rescue swimming skills? Uh, no, I. No, no, I, I, you know, many years ago, they were trying to put a boat unit and a rescue unit together and everything. And so somebody came to me, one of the commanders or sergeants or somebody, and uh, they said something about, you know, rescue swimmer stuff. And I said, well, I can get you a SAR manual to show you what it is that you're probably going to want on on that boat. And so I did. I went to the Navy and I got a, got a SAR manual, a search and rescue manual. That's what SAR is. And uh, I brought it back to him, and I put in for the unit and didn't get selected for it. I thought, yeah, that's kind of weird. What are you going to do? Yeah, I get it. Um, Anything else you want to say about that part of your life, the the Navy? Well, you actually was a big part of your life because you were in active duty for a while, and then are you in a— Yeah, so I I got commissioned. Um, I was going to get out, and my skipper— uh, talked me into putting in for a commission to become a commission officer. And uh, so I did. I got selected. But I still wanted to be a cop. So now I'm getting a little older. It's four or five years down the road. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm getting a little bit older here. And uh, he said, well, I just do it for four years. Well, the only job I could take that seemed remotely connected to police work was intelligence work. So I became an intelligence officer. And I did that, and I was going to get out, and then I wound up getting married, and this, and I wasn't ready to get out because now I have to find it. You know, it's, I'm just not thinking about me. I have to think. I'm thinking with with her in mind too. So uh, I stayed in, and I wound up doing uh, ten, almost eleven years active duty, and then uh, somebody told me, well, you should go into reserves because you know the benefits are pretty good. After you hit twenty years, you only got nine more to go. So that's what I did. I, I stayed in the reserves. Of course, I got called back two weeks after 9-11 yeah. and got sent away. So I forgot to ask you, your dad came to talk to you. What was the next, how did it go the next day after your dad's encouragement? So so I, I, I passed. So uh, I did the multi-rescue. I got, got done with everything. And um, there were more instructors than there were students, which, you know, because 
we had so many students drop out. We had, you know, nine instructors and eight students. And so uh, I was told that if they ripped your T-shirt off at the end of the pool evolution, then you passed. And as I've, they, they make you swim to the shallow end, and then they, they ripped my T-shirt off. And there was another fellow that was, had, had gone ahead of me. So I was the number two guy. And uh, I'm talking to him, and I go, Jesus, I, you know, I didn't think I was going to pass. Latowski told me I was the worst rescue swimmer I'd ever, <laughs> he'd ever seen. And he goes, yeah, he told me the same thing. And come to find out, he told everybody the same sure. story. That's how horrible we were. So it was a mind. So I learned that too, yeah. which didn't help me when I became an officer because I always giggle at the Marine drill instructors and I wound up doing a lot of push-ups for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good. Great. Um, so let's see. So the Navy, big part of your life. Um... A, a huge part of my life. I, I love I loved the Navy. Still great friends all over all over the world actually um and we visit with them and yeah it's a huge part of my life where were you deployed after 9-11 i went over to uh Chick-Pack, which is a joint intelligence center pacific in uh, honolulu so it was a pretty arduous the, my yeah. wife and kids stayed here and and i went over to hawaii which i was turning 40 i mean if you're going to have a midlife crisis at 40 and trying to figure out, you know, am I doing? And I was getting a little burnt on police work at that point because at that point now I had been on the job for six years, and you know, I was kind of getting into that danger zone a little bit. I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about here. And, yeah, and, well, you're uh, good at the job, but you and, and you become a little complacent kind of thing, and it's like, oh, and I thought I just I kind of needed a, so it was a break for me from police work and. um I started doing the military stuff, and I and I remember specifically when I got to the I got to the unit, how I just I, the the pressure the the my shoulders began to relax. I just felt like a different person, and if I just had my family with me, you know, everything would have been been great. You know, but, you know I've been thinking about uh, policing. Um, I wish, in some ways, it was more like the military in the sense that. You know, maybe there were incentives to be in policing for 10 years versus 30 years. Like, you know, you could build incentives to, to do that or give cops a break for yeah. periods, of, you know, like, you, you know, sabbatical type thing where they can explore something else or kind of get a break from it, like you said. You know, yeah, re I mean, re recalibrate a little bit, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's an important part of uh, trying to stay healthy. You know, keeping your mind straight. You really, if, if you're going to come out of this profession healthy, you really have to work at it. You have to work at it. Because if you don't, you're going to be miserable. Yeah. And so where is that most obvious to you when you think of your coworkers, that they're not working on what they need to work on? Oh, you know, when you're, when you're uh, in roll call or you're having dinner on a dinner break, um, just the... Uh, um, the us versus them mentality you see that and that you know there's a boogeyman around every corner and i mean ah, what a horrible way to go through life you know uh and so you kind of have to have to find some way to to relieve that, that that pressure and that stress tell me about meditation <laughs> did 
Did I tell you I meditate? Oh, I know you do. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how I know that, but I think maybe you and I were both meditating, and we met in some uh, meditative <laughs> space somewhere. Maybe I don't know. Uh, what's your so that you work that late afternoon mm-hmm. or evening? What's your your what's your meditation routine? So I wake up in the morning, and uh, it's usually I'm the only one in bed because everybody else has gone to work. And, uh, it, you know, uh, I always wake up, uh, you know, uh, you know, do the bathroom thing. And then, and then, um, I have, uh, you know, that daily word, you know what that is? The daily word. It's like, uh, they're like little meditative things each day of the month. And I, I began reading those probably 30 years ago and I just really like them. Are they, they're not scripture. Yeah, are, are they're they they're connected. That's the Unity Church that puts them out. Okay, um, but I just of... I just like them. They're real positive. It's like reading the, the Reader's Digest. You know how positive the Reader's Digest is. I love. I just, I get the Reader's. I love it reading the Digest because the stories are so positive all the time. They're yeah. such great stories and uplifting, and and the crossword puzzle is easy. So. Um, <laughs> And the print, they can make it in a and they big print version. Super large print, so I can read it. Uh, okay, so, so um, I, I so read, you... I read the, uh, I yeah. read the Daily Word, okay. and it just, you know, you can plug in whatever you want to God and Jesus, whatever you know, if it's Buddha or if it's, you, know, you don't Allah, have to qualify or apologize. So, um, and then I just sit, and I and I begin this breathing process that Kathleen taught me, and then Justin modified a little bit. And uh, I just get real quiet. The house is real quiet. And I just start breathing. And, uh, you know, the thoughts come into your head and you just kind of push them away. And uh, you just try to um, concentrate for 20 minutes or so. And it's, it's, it seems 20, 25. I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll kind of open my eyes and go, wow, 45 minutes have gone by. Uh, other times, five minutes has gone by. But it's generally about 20, 25 minutes. I sit up there. And then I just kind of do some some breathing and get up and start my day. So, mm-hmm. you know, it seems to help. Well, and you've done it for years and years and years. So it fit, it fits a space in your day. You kind of probably yeah. uh, feel like you need it. Yeah. So it's a it's a habit. habit right? yeah. After eighteen times, it becomes a habit, and so it's a, it's a it's a positive, healthy habit um, to counteract some of the bad. <laughs> Sure. No, I like it. I like it a lot, actually. I have a section in my book about meditation. Yeah. Um, I um, what appeals more to me is a daily prayer practice that yeah. I've done since since I was a tiny little boy, yeah. as long as I remember. But yeah. it's a routine that I do. I've done my entire life. Right. And uh, and now, interestingly, I mean, I even sometimes I really hurry downstairs to get into it because I feel I need it. Or I, or I have some something I want to process or whatever. Right. Hey, how old are you? I'm 58. 58? 58. So we're the almost the same age. We're both have six, five siblings. We're both Irish Catholic or mm. um, that's kind of Catholic, yeah. Um, and Irish. Give and me Irish, that too. yeah. Um, so that's your. What I like about your meditation practice is what you just described is very, very obtainable. Uh, yeah. what you described, I, I talk about, uh, you were talking about, um, distracting thoughts or something that entered your brain. 
and that's actually part of the process. You know, you kind of, these things drift in, you maybe kind of look at them or whatever and let them drift out. There was a, um, I heard a process for managing that is, and see if you like this, um, during meditation, you could imagine that you're leading a docile um, donkey down a trail. And every so often, the donkey wants to leave the trail and because it gets interested in something on the side mm-hmm. of the trail. And you don't beat the donkey or yank its head back. You just gently bring it back to the trail again. Right. And that's kind of maybe how the mind maybe wanders off and then bring it back, yep. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Good for me. Good for you. Um, let's see. I wanted to also ask you about um, meditating while you're swimming in the ocean. No. Uh, I, I don't meditate while I'm in the ocean, but, but I do uh, I do a moving kind of meditation while I'm swimming. Okay. I actually was making a joke there, but I, that is a good point because yeah. you, you, you swim during your uh, I do. PT I, time. Uh, that's what I do is I swim. Uh, well, because of COVID, I, uh, I'm down. So I'm swimming about three-quarters of a mile three days a week. But I'm working to get it back up to a mile. Um, of course, my wind isn't what it used to be, but because it, so I, I increase by 200 yards every few weeks till I get to about 2,000 yards. 2,000 yards is a nautical mile, hmm. so I swim 2,000 yards about three times a week. Well, and to be a skilled swimmer, you must get into a meditative. I do. So what, when I'm I'm swimming, not I, not like you're meditating, but I'm no. just saying a repetitive motion that kind of. What's the thing where you hold the hold the things and they they zap you while you're doing the well the EMDR maybe you're EMDR about? yeah right where, where you so can do what, the eye move but they can also yeah do right. wands in the hand yeah so this is kind of in, in the same vein a little bit kind of thing and so what I'm doing is I'm swimming and every fourth breath I'm saying whatever that positive affirmation is I have a little routine sure. that I do there are four things that I say for you know one lap another lap another lap another lap and then i start over again kind of thing and it they're just positive things that i i say to myself but i'm moving so i'm integrating the thought with muscle yeah it's kind of weird it's I, this I'm, is I'm, way I, people i say this no. at work and people are looking at me like what well and, and any strange smoking? look that i'm giving you is because i i love what you're saying yeah. um here, first of all, I just want to clarify: they don't zap you during EMDR. No, not zap you. I mean, <laughs> no, no. So, because I'm a, I really recognize a huge value in what what we might call non-talk therapy for some trauma, right. which includes, yeah, EMDR. Yep. People can just Google that. Also, yep. there's accelerated resolution therapy, and what it is is kind of it, the the eye movement or the tapping sometimes the tapping that's what it is or or you can actually hold a a kind of like wands that vibrate a little bit and they switch from side yeah and i think what they're switching is the side lobes of the brain right the reason i bring that up is it's really interesting that you brought up related to swimming because they think that running so you're hit with your left foot hit with your right foot bang Mm -hmm. bang bang you can get into a rhythm motion even drumming like you think of you know aboriginal people or tribal people or whatever doing rhythmic drumming with your hands and now maybe even swimming, you know, you could crossing the center line. That's what the, I've been of the told. brain. You mean crossing the center line of your body, yeah. physically crossing the center line. So if you're standing up and you, you raise your left knee yeah. and you hit it with your right hand and then do the, your cross. And so what you're doing is engaging both lobes of the brain at that point. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm swimming, I'm very conscientious about crossing the center line while I'm doing the pullback. 
Yeah, it's weird. I mean, this is really out there. People it are... isn't out there, uh, <laughs> unless you want to want people to think it's way out there. But it's it's right in there. I yeah. like it. I I, well, I'll I'll say this. I think you're telling the truth here. I feel I feel pretty healthy, so it must be working. Because I could be a miserable human being, but I'm not. Now I am making a funny face. <laughs> um, so how? So that has sustained you in a long law enforcement career. Yes. Seeing a lot of death and destruction. And you yes. came in here talking, your first story was this, not a very dramatic, but just a sad case. Yeah. Um, you know, what I like about that is your meditation, your swimming, your spirituality allows you to be in this longer and give more and help with more. Yeah. And then do you feel like, can I ask you, do you feel like you were there for your family? I do. I'm, and that's why I stayed in patrol, because I can control that. Um, those five years that I was with the FBI, there was a, there was a <laughs> lot of, I don't do overtime. Of course, I had the military. Uh, and so I, I was drilling once a month and then, you know, two or three weeks out of every year. Um, so I, I never really had to do the overtime thing. Um, and because I could set, uh, you know, as, as I became senior, I could set what shift I wanted to work. Man, that was, that really worked out. I mean, it just worked out. So not trying to reach for, you know, becoming an assistant chief or a senior commander or anything like that. And I'm sure that if I had set my course that way, I could have done that. But to me, taking care of the two little ones and being available for my wife was more important than, than, than any of that. And so that's why I chose to, 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 to stay uh, on, on patrol as a patrol officer. And I mean, financially, I knew I, I knew I have a military pension coming in, right? I did that because I had two jobs for many years as a police officer. I had two jobs. I was a Navy guy and, uh, and a, a police officer. And um, there's a, there's, as an officer, as, as you become more senior, in a reserve unit, you're doing a lot more work away from the unit, you know, that kind of stuff. Especially when they figured out all this computer stuff. It was like, oh, man, you know, constantly working out. But, yeah, I, I felt like I was there for him, you know. Good. Yep. Um, so I'm going to do a little commercial. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm going to do a little commercial here. Think about maybe something you want to say about um, your career as a St. Paul cop. Maybe a call that you want to talk about or something outstanding about your time here on the patrol because you revealed that you're getting near the end of your career here. Um, and I don't mean they're thinking about firing you. No, I don't, uh, 57 more days, but. You know. All right. Um, so think about that. Um, before we end, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you might be interested in my book. It's called good cop, good cop, a get healthy, stay healthy guide for law enforcement. So I cover a lot of topics in there, including uh, meditation and breathing and things like that as well. A big focus of the book, uh, in addition to fitness and nutrition and sleep, is a lot on uh, mental and emotional well-being. And even some stuff about peer support, and I know you're one of our peer support team members. So um, the book is in print or on Audible, and you can uh, purchase it through Amazon. You can also find more information about me um, and the book and the podcast and some other things I do at goodcopgoodcop.com. Anything come to mind when I was 
laying that out there? Well, I am 58, so the memory isn't uh, what it used to be. It's um, better, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there've, uh, there was, I know you had Don Chenard on. Uh, one of the calls I remember on the east side with Don, we were working together, and it was a baby not breathing call. And uh, I got on scene, and I had some medical training, and uh, it was a, uh, a blue baby. And um, so I'm there talking. I'm trying to talk to the parents. Don is maybe two or three seconds behind, and he comes in, he grabs that kid, turns the kid over, starts hitting it on the back, um, and then doing small chest compressions, rubbing the chest and everything, and brought that baby back. And uh, we walked out of it, and there was a group of people in there, maybe five or six. Not a thank you, not a go to hell, nothing. Just okay. And we walked out, and you know what a what a good good feeling uh, that was at the end of that at, at the end of that call. Um, so, you know, I mean, I have. Hundreds. I mean, if you think about a patrol guy, an active patrol person, and, and Jesse Molnar and I were partners for many years, and and we were taking lots of calls. On the east side, back 10, 15, 16, 17 years ago, we were hitting it, and we had a good crew. And it was kind of like a little self-competition between all of the, 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 uh, the fellas, um, the teams. And... Uh, Todd Ferroni and Billy Baudette, Pat and Jake, and and uh, Bob and Axe. I mean, great cops, great cops. And uh, so we were seeing, you know, who can do more traffic stops, who could do, you know, more calls, who could go to booking the most, and it, that was fun. I mean, that was that was a a great part of, of my career. And everywhere that I've gone, though, I mean, I've just learned so much. You got to be open to learning, you know. So. I, wherever I've gone, I've always. But the really, really strong memory was working hard, having a good partner, being good at the job, and being a, a with a group of guys that were. I mean, yep. it's pretty. It's a. It's a pretty damn fun job when you uh, hit, oh, that, hit yeah. that rhythm. And, and you felt like you were doing good work. I mean, you you really did. Uh, felt like you were doing good work, solving solving problems for people, um, taking care of people that are in distress. It's. Uh, not all of it's perfect. I mean, I, I have some, some bad ones out there, you know, but sure, sure. that's where the EMDR comes in trying to, trying to chase those ghosts away. Well, um, interesting you say that. Um, you know, it, um, there's a book called Prince of the City, uh, and uh, I always think of that's what it's like to be a cop. You're the prince of a city. Um, you, yeah. You know, you mentioned, uh, I'll just call it debris, and this is what I want to encourage every officer that's listening any cop that's listening, whether they're our agency or another. Cops that are thinking about retiring, I'm asking you, I'm, I'm encouraging you, clean up some of that debris before you go. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if you're fortunate to be at an agency like ours where we have a bunch of really good resources in place and they're trustworthy and easy to access and super skilled, yeah, go ahead, get some of that, get some EMDR, get some processing. Yeah. Um, so you can go on to the rest of your life as healthily as possible. You know? Yeah. And yeah, I, I've, I've been very fortunate in my wife that, uh, she's always advocated for good mental health, um, and taking care. 
uh, of oneself. Not just with me, but with our kids, with, with everybody that she's come in contact with. And, and she's a remarkable, remarkable woman in that way. And, and we had a call on the east side. I don't, do you want me to talk about calls? I don't sure, know. Sure, I do. Uh, young girl, she was going southbound and didn't see a stop sign. She was coming from a wedding, or no, a baby shower, or maybe it was a wedding shower. Big pickup truck comes down and smokes her. Um, she had to stop. He had to right away. And uh, we get on scene, My and I had a rookie with me. Uh, Tom Weinzettel, uh was with me. And we get on scene, and she's in the, she had been, um, she hadn't been thrown out of the driver's seat, but she was leaning over the passenger seat. She still had her seatbelt on and everything. And, and she was dead. I mean, I don't know if it broke her neck. I don't know what the, 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 the car wasn't too bad, but it must have just been the, the, the jolt, that kind of whatever it was. So I get her life, you know, we do all of that. I've got a rookie with me, so he's handling a call. And then Jesse showed up because he had a rookie with him. And uh, we handle a call and everything. And uh, and that was, she was a young girl, maybe 24, 25 years old, just recently married. Um, and I remember that they lived like three blocks away from where I, where I live. And uh, I woke up the next day and uh, my... Uh, my wife says, well, how was last night? Said, oh, my God, you know, this is awful. This is, you know, absolutely awful. It's awful. And I talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. She said, what's the address? And I, you know, told her. And she said, well, why don't you walk over there and talk to him? I said, I don't know. Can I? I? I didn't know. But it, it was really bugging me. You know, I mean, I just felt so sorry for him. So I go over there and I ring the bell. And yes, who is it? I said, no. and I tell him, and I said, does he want to talk to me now that he's got his mom and dad, her mom and dad, the brothers and sisters? I mean, it's a tiny little apartment and it's stuffed with people. Yeah, yeah, I know. He wants to talk to you. He wants to talk to you. So he's a young man. He's a young man. He was like 25, just been killed. And okay. they're in there, and it's just, you walk in and you can just, like a black drape over everybody, right? It's just absolutely awful. So uh, they start questioning me, you know, what, you know, how did you find her, you know, and what does she look like? Because they don't know. I do. I was right there. I said, well, she, you know, there wasn't a look of horror on her face. You know, she seemed to be somewhat, you know, peaceful. She just looked like she was sleeping. She just looked like she was sleeping. Now they're crying and I'm crying and everybody's crying. We're wringing hands and all this other stuff. And uh, I got up to leave, you know, after about 45 minutes or an hour. And uh, the dad, you know, comes up and hugs me. And then the other dad comes up and, and the mom. And then he comes up. And I give him my address and say, you know, or my phone number. And I say, if you need anything, you know, let me know and everything. But it was because I processed it that way that, that I mean, I'm talking to you now about it. But it doesn't bring anything up inside of me because I got it out with them. Right. I remember when I was at first a cop in, in Austin, Texas, I had a, a kid got hit by a car, kid, college kid, hit by a car late at night. 
by a fella that was just driving down the road, didn't see him, it's dark, it's on Congress Avenue in Austin, Texas. And I get on scene, I'm the first on scene, I'm a rookie, I don't think I've been on the job a year. And I get there, and there's all these people standing around, and I start doing CPR on them. You know, I, chest compressions. Well, the blood's coming out of the ear, you know he's gone. And I'm doing it. And then, yeah, and it's like taking, it took a year and a half for the EMT guys to get there, EMS guys to get there. And then they get there, and my sergeant shows up. And he says, all right, start getting information. So I'm getting information from the guy. I wind up having to take the guy down, give him a breathalyzer and all this other stuff. And he had had a couple of cocktails, but I wasn't a jerk to him, right? I was an okay guy to him and, you know, nice to him and everything. He said, I know this is awful. And he's all upset. I mean, he had had a glass of wine at dinner. And truly, when he blew, he blew like a 0.2 or whatever. I mean, he had nothing in him. Um, but that night, I had a dream. No, it wasn't that night. It was maybe a week, a couple of weeks later. I wake up from a dream, and uh, I was like crying in my dream. And my wife, and I'm a new cop, and she's not used to this kind of stuff. And she said, what happened? And I said, my dad died, and nobody cried. She goes, well, what's the dream telling you? That I never processed his death. I just worked on him got the information, started, you know, taking people downtown for the intox Eliza test and all that. Well, I meet the guy three years later. I, you know, we're, I don't know where I am. I might be in Zilker Park or something in Austin, Texas. And he goes, do you remember me? And I'm, he said, I was the guy that hit that kid on Congress. I mean, he goes, you were such a great guy to me that night. He goes, I'll never forget you. Yeah. So being a cop is pretty freaking powerful, man. I mean, you can really have an impact. And that's just like one story of, I don't know how many thousand, right? If you take 2,000 calls a year or 1,500 calls a year and you do 25 years, that's a lot. And every, you know, police work is an easy to job, an easy job to do poorly, a hard job to do well. Yeah. And every cop has got a story like that. Not now, no, I don't, let me say that again. Every cop's got a story. Yes. Um, not like that necessarily. And one way to think about it is, you know, you were in this person's worst day of their life. Mm -hmm. And actually driving around, you're on the verge of being in someone's worst day of their life always. Yep. 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 And so you got to process that stuff. Um, you know. you, um, one thing I, I want to say about that is there are... One, one way a cop can talk to themselves or look at them, think about their situation is if you can't talk about certain things, that's okay, all right? There's certain things that I can't talk about, mm -hmm. all right? And, and uh, but, but when you are able to talk about something, it usually means you've processed it. If you can talk about it without the original intense pain. Right, that's the, that's the key. It's, so my, um, we were, we were at my house and, uh, it was a Friday cause I'm off every Thursday and Friday and we have cocktail hour on my front porch. Uh, and the neighbors come over and we sit and we have cocktails and the kids and there's a lot, my kids are grown, but there's lots of little kids in the neighborhood. And, uh, 
one of the kids was going to cross the street. This is a five or six year old. And I'm yelling from, make sure you, you know, are looking both ways. Make sure, stop, make sure you're looking both ways. And my daughter's sitting next to me. And she says, what are you freaking out about? And I go, well, I, I want her to look both ways before she crosses the street. Um, she goes, you have PTSD. And I go, she goes, how do you feel right now? I, when you said that, how did you feel? And I had this kind of, you know, it's just a little tightness. I don't know. I, I never, you know, really processed this PTSD stuff. She goes, well, you have PTSD. And, I, and she goes, it's from that accident with the little Asian girl when she ran out between two cars and got killed. She said, that's what you're holding on to. And that's why you're, you get so worked up when you see something like that because you want to save that little Asian girl. And you can't. And so now you're going to save all these out here. This my 22-year-old daughter is telling me this. So there's there's wisdom all around us, right? And there's there's knowledge. And, and you got to be, that's what meditation does. Open your brain to take in some of that knowledge. That's that's why, to me, it's so important. You know, so. What was the Asian girl? What's that? What was that story, Asian girl? I, Is that the one I'm all thinking the, all of? These, all these, that on Magnolia Avenue... Um, we were having coffee. It was a Saturday. It was a nothing kind of deal. Jesse and I are having coffee and we actually got split up. He was working central at the time because it wasn't enough to hold, hold East. And, uh, so, but we used to meet, we used to meet on the border. We used to meet for dinner and all the others. We were like a married couple that didn't want to, you know, be separated from each other. Sure. And, uh, so a call comes out, pedestrian struck and I, I'm the first one on scene. And there's this little girl laying in the, in the, in the, uh, on Magnolia Avenue, just off of pain. And uh, I see a pickup truck down the road, and, and there's a big Asian family across the street, and a mom, and there's a yelling and a wailing and all this other stuff. So I, I turned the girl over. She was kind of on her side, and I put her on her back, and she's dead. I mean, she's dead. And then Jesse comes up behind me because he had been at coffee uh, with me. And uh, he says, Eddie, do something. They're watching you. So I start doing the little chest compressions on this four-year-old girl. And the blood's coming out of the ears. And and so I know she's gone. Of course, the medics take another month and a half to get there. uh, And I'm on air asking for him to hurry up, you know, step it up, step it up, step it up. And uh, they eventually they eventually get there. Uh, so that was, uh, but I, I think, and, and Billy, I remember Billy being there. I, I remember some of the cops that were there. Because I remember, I, I think I was on the peer team because they. That was the first time that that peer stuff had appeared in my life. That's kind of weird. Because I remember, I rem- <laughs> yeah, up here. Because <laughs> I remember, we won't, there was this, um, somewhat reluctance of staying in the room um and i remember saying reminding everybody and it came to me well, you may not be here for yourself you might be here for your co-worker yeah. and everyone just settled down into it then so suddenly, suddenly everybody was like oh they i did. get it i'm not, i don't have to prove that i need or don't need this right but i i mean that's worked i've used that so many times even for like debriefings yeah just please show up because yeah. um 
it, your other coworkers might need to see you there. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I had more, and I, I think I even wrote a letter to the chief because I'm a big, you know, if somebody's doing right, I write, I write people up all the time. I write letters to the chief, you know, saying thank you to this group or that group or whatever. And after that event, I remember writing a letter to the chief saying, let me tell you something about your cops. So. Hmm. Hey, Ed. Um, so that was what I would call some soulful stories. <laughs> I love it. Oh, this isn't a therapy session. Uh, it isn't? Yeah. I'll tell everybody you're actually laying on a couch right now. Um, and I'm scratching my chin. The... Um, but here's what I think. I think um, cops are a little wounded. Wounded. Mm. And I know I'm a little wounded. Mm. And I'm some part of that I'm absolutely okay with. I mean, mm. I don't expect to not have any wounds because of the, these kind of work we do. All right. And uh, some wounds are, need to be managed and, and need some help. I'm all about that, as you right. know, in my job. Right. But I don't think cops should be too afraid of feeling a bit wounded, that somehow they got to relieve themselves of all that pain maybe. But I do think it's good, especially if you, especially if they're having, I to make everybody, let's just say it that way. I don't know any cop that couldn't benefit from seeing a culturally competent therapist and just kind of reviewing their career. And if a therapist is skilled, they're going to understand. They're going to get you to. They're going to. They're going to have the radar for how, yeah. how to direct that thing. Yeah. And then, and also too, just a huge benefit of things that we've talked about a few times is the um, non. What do you call it? Non-talk therapy things, like we mentioned. And there's right. some other people can write or talk to me too. There's some new and upcoming therapeutic processes for trauma too that are really interesting so yeah um anything you thought i was going to ask you about that i didn't no i figured we we kind of get down get down this road you know i mean you and i talk quite a bit you know especially as as uh with the peer support and stuff and uh i mean we're you know very much alike in many many ways and so uh, I, I figured you know we, we talk about i i talk about this the peer support i talk about uh um, you know, seeing somebody, I, I don't make, there's no secret. I mean, people that I work with know that, that, uh, you know, I work on my uh, mental health and my, my mental well-being. I think one of the things that makes me sad about police work these days is that nobody, it's okay, I'm not going to use nobody. Uh, what we're not hearing uh, from the other side is that, the cops are wounded, that this job can create or, or can affect the way that you interact with people. And so when they say we need police reform, we need police reform, you know, and, okay, maybe you need a little police reform. What you really need to do is how do I work with someone or how do, how do I get the other side of the argument, the other side of the narrative to understand that we're not, this is what I used to do in PCR. We're not autotrons. We're not robots. We have feeling, you know, we have good days, we have bad days, you know, and uh, you, you think that we're out there just as gunslingers. You know, I, I did some math. 
in the city of St. Paul, um, we have about one call for service for every person that lives in the city of St. Paul. So if you extrapolate that out to a country of 330 million people and 700,000 cops, we have 330 million calls for service a year, roughly, in the United States. How many calls are we talking about that went sideways, that look and that are really bad? Not a very high percentage. If GM and Ford and, and Chrysler and they all had a failure rate like that, you know, they'd be on top of the world. Um, so I think we're doing a great job as police officers in this country. I, I really, really do. And you're talking to somebody who's been to 35 different countries and seen a lot of different police departments and the way people live. We're okay. Yeah, we are okay. Um, what's heartbreaking is when cops start to believe that we aren't because the narrative is so intense. Um, right, and that's why we have to keep talking at roll call. Yeah. I'll just, I'd love to summarize that and get into it and, and actually talk about that, but let me say it this way. Um, I don't believe the police have failed the community. I believe the community has failed the police. That's a good way to put it. They yeah. have failed. They have overburdened us and um, with unreasonable and unobtainable objectives sometimes. And the I don't, I don't need to explain this to you, but I'll say the intensity under which cops work and still apply their craft, it's so remarkable. Yes. Uh, I mean, you and I are sitting here both active police officers talking about how much we admire cops, you know, and my admiration for cops has only increased. So, yeah. Hey, Ed, that was good. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for what you've done for us yep. and our city and our peers. Thank you for doing this work and thank you for allowing yourself to get so close and caring so much that you get a bit wounded by it. Yep. Um, yep. And that's it, everybody. Thank you for listening and um, get back to work. <laughs> Copy that. <laughs>